tonight, we're, we're going to do, this isn't really a, a Bible study, but it's a how to study the Bible. That's what we're doing tonight, and specifically tonight, we're talking about how to understand biblical poetry. And so we'll, we'll see why that is so important if you're going to be a student of God's Word. It's, it's critical to begin to understand uh, poetry in the Bible. So let me pray, and then we will jump into this uh, this evening. Father God, we are thankful and grateful uh, for you. And Lord, the fact of, of, of the songs that we just sung, uh, being grateful for the finished work of Christ, standing in Him and in Him alone, Lord, regardless of the powers of hell that would try to pluck us away, they can't pluck us away because of what you've done. And we know that because you recorded it in your word. So Lord, we pray that tonight you would, would help us and teach us how we might understand your word more rightly, how we can grasp particularly the poetic books of the Bible and poetry that is throughout your word and understand it more accurately and more rightly that our lives may glorify you even more powerfully. So Lord, be with us tonight as we come uh, to this study in this time and glorify your name in all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, before we get into that first slide, has anyone ever heard or said these words as a child? My mama's gonna kill me. Has anyone ever said that? Or my daddy is going to kill me. And, and how many, raise your hand if you've ever said that, thought that. Okay, it's probably good that at some point in your life you said that or thought that. It probably kept you from a whole lot of foolishness, right? It probably kept you from a lot of stuff. But when you said that, did you mean that when I go home, mama's going to pull out a 357 Magnum and shoot me three times in the head? Is that what you thought would happen? Now, maybe for some of you it was. If that's true, then we have, we'll have prayer. There's a lot of, we got some anointing oil. We're going to pray for you afterwards, okay? But for most of us, when we say those words, what we're using is figurative or poetic speech, right? Because we know that when mama finds out or when daddy finds out what I did, it's going to be ugly, right? But we don't actually think that we're about to meet our final demise. At least I hope you don't think that when you said that. Um, but so, so we use expressions, idioms, and poetic speech all of the time in, in our regular everyday life, but we tend to get confused with it when we see it in the Bible and, and stumble over it and say, well, how can that be? So we're going to look at a bunch of passages in the Scripture tonight, and we're going to talk about uh, how we can better understand our Bibles by understanding poetic language. So just a few things uh, before we get into it. Why is this so important? Well, it's important because one-third of the Bible is poetry. Is that, is that something? One-third of it. In fact, uh, in, in the Old Testament, all but seven books have poetry, and many of them that you can see there on, on the slide uh, are 
all poetry or almost all poetry. Um, in the New Testament, there's many sections that are poetic. Um, and in the Gospels alone, Jesus uses poetic language over 220 times. So if you want to understand uh, the Bible well, Old Testament, not just the book of Psalms or Proverbs, but Old Testament and New Testament, you've got to begin to grapple with biblical poetry and poetic language in the scriptures. So, here, here's a, a statement from John Stott, who says, We must allow the Word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. It's powerful, right? The, a, a primary way that God does that is by using poetic language. The language of poetry, and we'll look at it in a little while, but, but is emotive language. It's, it's the language that, that throws you off, that disturbs you, that puts you in another world. It's not just give me the facts, just the facts. But, but poetic language is a way that God uses. He could have given us a book that looks like the instructions that I had to read last week when I was trying to put in a new faucet. You know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and a picture of how to do it. And I felt so bad that I actually had to look at the pictures and I had to read through the instructions because I had no clue what I was doing. And most of the time, men don't want to read the instructions, but I had to. But God could have given us one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, just laid it out, syllogisms, propositions, facts, and just put it out there for us. God chose not to do that that way. He chose to give us his word in a lot of different ways, a lot of different genres of scripture, uh, ways to describe himself, ways to talk about his plans and, and how he is. And poetic language is one of the powerful ways that God has done that for us. So I want to talk about, as we get into this, something known. Has anyone ever heard of the literary or the literal principle of biblical interpretation? Who has ever heard of that? Okay, a few people have heard of that. And so for a lot of people, when they say, well, uh, you'll hear this, well, we take the Bible literally around here. Now, my question is, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, well, to, to, to say that we take the Bible literally, what do you mean when you get to certain passages? And we'll look at some passages where it's like, what does it mean that you take it literally? Okay, so the literary principle of biblical interpretation is not that everything is, is literal in the sense of this means this from a, a literal perspective, but it is that Scripture must be interpreted in its natural sense from the writer to the original audience. So what was that writer trying to communicate to that audience using the forms of speech that the writer used. So we've got to understand that and grapple with that rather than to say, well, we just take the Bible literally so it means, and we'll see how that can send us off in some strange directions if we're not careful. So the Bible has all kinds of different 
literary devices, metaphors, parables, hyperbole, idioms, exaggeration is in the Bible, irony. All those things are not meant actually to be taken literally. So look at the example I have here in Revelation chapter four, chapter 12. So if you have Revelation chapter 12, uh, let me just read a little bit of that to you. We take the Bible literally, someone says. Revelation chapter 12, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head on a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And, when the, dra and, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, for someone that says, we take the Bible literally and means everything that I see, it has to happen exactly that way. What they're saying is at some point there's a big dragon and he swings his tail and, and one third of the stars in the heavens come down to the earth. Now, I think most of us would agree if one star from heaven came down to the earth, we'd all be in trouble, right? We, we'd be in serious trouble. So, uh, we understand, for example, this is from the book of Revelation, that that is a, a genre of scripture called apolo, a, a, apocalyptic literature that we see some of a little bit in the Old Testament in Ezekiel and Daniel. There is a lot of literature between the Testaments and at the time of the New Testament that was apocalyptic. And it was a way of describing things poetically, largely drawing from symbols and metaphors in the Old Testament. So if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you've got to go into your Old Testament and understand it well. Um, but it's symbols and metaphors that God puts together to communicate his word in a powerful way. Um, but to just say, well, we just believe the Bible. I, I should not do a southern accent. I shouldn't do that. I fall into that because I'm from, I love the South, and I'm from Mobile, Alabama, and I just figure once you learn to talk right, you might as well just keep doing it. So when I do a southern accent, I don't mean no harm. So anyway, uh, but, but, but to say we're, we're literal here, we need to understand what that literal principle is, that we take the Bible in the genre and in the, in, from the author in a way that's consistent with what that author was trying to communicate. So, recognizing poetic speech. A few things about what poetic speech looks like. First of all, biblical poetry is marked by parallelism of several varieties. We'll talk a lot about parallelism tonight. Poetic speech is marked by terseness. It's short. Sentences are much shorter than in prose. Poetry is much more inclined to use figurative language, what we've been talking about already, metaphors, hyperbole, all that kind of thing. Um, and in much of the Bible, modern English translations mark off poetry by indenting the passages. When you look at Psalms, when you look at Proverbs, when you look at uh, the minor prophets or even the major prophets, 
And even some passages, they do that in the New Testament, but not most of them. So you can see it's poetry, even when it's not just Psalms. You can see it in Isaiah. You can see it in Jeremiah. You can see it in Lamentations and in the Minor Prophets. You can see because it's marked off that way. But very often in the New Testament, it's not marked off that way. So let's talk about parallelism. When you talk about poetry in the Bible, you're not talking about necessarily meter or rhyme. That's, that's what we think of when we think of poetry, right? When we, when we do poetry, I know for me, if it doesn't rhyme, I'm like, something's wrong with that, you know? Mary had a little lamb, her fleece was white as snow. Everywhere that Mary went, the lamb went also. That wouldn't work for me, right? But the lamb was sure to go. Okay, I get it. It rhymes. I'm cool, right? But that's not... Hebrew poetry. It's not Hebrew poetry at all. So even if it was, I don't know how we get that. Thank you, thank you. A little bit of that action right there. <laughs> Mary had a little lamb. Okay, so um, even if it was, we wouldn't get it because it's in a different language, and when we carry it over into our language, if we're getting the words right, they wouldn't necessarily rhyme anyway, right? But Hebrew poetry, and, and even in the New Testament, biblical poetry is marked by parallelism we'll, we'll look at several uh several types of parallelism in just a minute so the key to understanding parallelism and that's usually two lines sometimes it can be three lines or four lines that relate directly to one another in some way so the critical thing about understanding it is not just understanding for example what line number one means but you need to look at it all together and you need to look at the relationship between each of the the lines of verse in the poetry um, so here, here's the analogy here um, you, so you look at the tension between them what what's the difference here what is it trying to convey so in a sense many times the first line gives you the basic idea it's right there but if all you had was that it's kind of like looking at, at something with one eye, one, one eye alone. And if you look with both eyes, you get better depth perception. If you look with both eyes, you can see some things that you otherwise wouldn't see because your peripheral vision is better. Some more things actually come to light when you're looking at it with both eyes. That's what happens with poetry in the Bible. So when you understand the relationship between the different lines of poetry and, 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 and the distinction between the two and how that fits, now you're putting on 3D glasses to look at what God is saying to you, right? Before, you were on an old black and white screen in the dark just trying to make it out a little bit, but now you got your 3D glasses and you can see God's word come crystal clear to you because of that. So... There's also, and we're not going to talk much about this, but in the Hebrew Bible, there are a lot of things that are acrostic poems. Um, if anyone's ever looked at Psalm 119, for example, Psalm 119 has 176 verses. They're in couplets of eight verses each. And over each one, you'll see a Hebrew character in your Bible. So it starts with Aleph. 
the first eight verses. So each of those verses in the Hebrew Bible starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. The next eight verses start with the Hebrew letter, Bet, and so on and so forth. So it goes throughout the 176 verses of Psalm 119. And then many of the, the, the Psalms in the Old Testament, I've listed them there, uh, have acrostic poems. Most of them, each line starts with the next letter in the alphabet. It's just a different way of, of conveying. It's a poetic way, right? God, uh, for you artists in here, God is an artist. And he's an artist with words. And he conveys himself in beauty and in majesty and in power. So it just helps us to see the wonder of God. The, the Proverbs 31 woman is an Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hep, Vav, Zion woman. Whoever, have you ever heard that before? It, it, it's all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet start each line of verse for the Proverbs 31 woman. So when, let, let me just tell you this real quick. I, I should not do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm sorry, wife. I know you love me. But so when I was in seminary, we had to learn like the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, we had like one day to learn it. I'm like, how can I do that in one day? Same thing with the Greek alphabet. So the only way I could do that was to put my considerable rap skills together. Because I'm a, I'm a little bit of a rapper. Y'all don't know. Y'all don't know. M-C-Y-T. That, that's what I went by. So... Here you go. Here is the wrapped Hebrew alphabet. I can't even look at y'all when I do this. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Het, Vav, Zion, Het, Tet, Yad, Kef, Lamed, Mem, Nun, Semek, Ayin, Pesade, Kof, Shin, Shin, Tav, to the Hebrew alphabet. That's all that I have. There you go. For the whole world to hear, God forgive me for I do not know what I'm doing. Okay. Comparing prose and poetry in the Bible. So prose is marked by referential speech. It, it, the main goal is accurately passing off information. It's not emotional language for the most part. It's the language of science. It's aimed at your head. It informs you. Poetry is marked by what we call commissive speech. The main goal of it is to evoke an emotion. The language tries to arouse or display emotions. It's, it's aimed at your heart, not just your head. It's the language that lovers use. Uh, 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 prose or, or referential speech is the language that you hope your plumber uses or your, uh, your, your surgeon uses. I hope that your surgeon, as they take the scalpel, doesn't say, oh, that I should cut thee. I shall cut thee asunder, and, and there I will go into thy guts. You know, I mean, I don't want my surgeon to necessarily be a poet, right? I don't want that. Um, I want my surgeon to say, I need to be three un millimeters underneath this, and the 
incision will be 3.2 millimeters, and that's, that's what I want out of a surgeon, right? Um, so we, we need to use uh, referential speech or prose, uh, but, but lovers will use a different kind of speech, and that's poetry. Some of you have heard this poem before. I think it's called Sonnet 43, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She says, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and the breadth of, and the height that my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being and ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every man's most quiet need by sun and candlelight. That's for you, baby. That's right there. That's right. That's right there. Okay. If your plumber says that to you, get a new plumber. I mean, for real. So we see these different kinds of speech in the Bible. Luke, the great historian, the doctor, uh, in, in the second chapter of Luke, as he begins to present uh, Jesus, he, he's going to go through a whole bunch of facts. He talks about what year it was, who, was, who the governor was, what was happening, a census was called, and he's going through facts and leading you through all of that. Look for a second, if you have your Bible, though, at Psalm 73. Psalm 73. A stark contrast, a whole different way of speaking. Psalm 73, and we'll just look at a few verses um, there. I'll start at verse 23. It says, and this is David. uh, No, actually, this is a psalm of Asaph. I'm sorry. He says in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, speaking to God. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Isn't that beautiful? That's powerful language talking about his passion for being with God. And if you read that in the context of the psalm, he's coming from a very crazy place where he's almost going to say, you know, I just give up on this stuff. God ain't working for me. I'm about to give up. But then he, he, he enters into the temple and begins to worship and see God for who he is. And he writes this in this beautiful poetic language. Now, if I say I take the Bible literally, he says, my flesh and my heart may fail. What if that happens? You're dead, right? So you're dead. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, on earth, uh, nothing on earth that I desire. Um, I, I love the Lord. How many of you love the Lord here tonight? I hope you love the Lord. But like on Memorial Day, when I was smelling the barbecue, right, I was desiring some ribs and chicken as well, right? I mean, that's, that's not bad. But poetically, I say, there's nothing I desire but you, Lord. That's poetic speech. That's poetic speech. So the Bible is, is full of this kind of speech. So there are a couple places in the Bible that actually have uh, right next to each other um, poetic speech and then prose that are actually referring to the same event. So I wonder if I could get a couple of readers here. Someone just come up to the mic real quick. If you want to read for us 
those verses in Exodus 15. Someone come up to the mic and just read the verses. Oops, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't move it forward. Exodus 15. Oh, I'm hitting the wrong button on the wrong thing. There we go. Exodus 15. So who, who wants to read that for us? I'm going to make an army volunteer real quick if, if no one steps up to the plate. Come on, Candace. Read it nice and loud. Read it real good. And somebody get behind her that's going to read Exodus 14. Somebody get for us Exodus 14. Thank you, brother. Right, you, can you, right here? Okay, come on, Nicholas. Amen. Uh, when, when you see those two passages side by side, what, what strikes you? You don't have to go up to the mic, but try to talk loud. What strikes you when you see that? Right back here. It's the same story. Yup. It's giving a, 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 an account of the same event. What else strikes you in the contrast of those two passages? Anyone? Yes. Exodus 14 is kind of running through its prose. It's saying this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It still uses some, some other type of speech as well to describe it, but it's very, it's, it's about giving you the facts. What about Exodus 15? What do you see specifically there? Reggie, nice and loud. Right, so it, it pops out at you in a different way. Josh?
Right. And yes, right here. Last one. Right. You see God's right hand. You got God's nostrils involved in this one, right? You always want to get God's nostrils involved every now and again. Um, but, but you see this figurative language, which is powerful and emotive. It's a song. It's a song of triumph that, that, is, that they're singing. Now, if you just looked at that even more literally, e- even as, as Reggie mentioned, where it talks about consuming them like stubble, someone would say, well, the Bible actually says that he burnt up Pharaoh's army in Exodus 15, but in Exodus 14, it says they were drowned. The Bible has, uh, has problems, right? It, it, it's not saying the same thing. Well, it is saying the same thing. It's saying it in poetic languages, it, language in Exodus 15, and it's giving you a prose account of saying this is how it happened in Exodus 14. So uh, that's one of the things when people will often say well, the Bible doesn't agree with itself. One of those issues that many people have is they're taking poetic language the wrong way and not understanding the Bible correctly because of it. Um, Next, now let's look at a few forms of parallelism that you'll see in the Bible. We're going to look at three forms. These are three major forms of parallelism that you see in the Bible. So the first one from Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28 is called synonymous parallelism. So the verses say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who abuse you. Now, these are some hard verses, no matter how you take them, right? For all of us, and for some of us, they're particularly difficult verses because of what you may have been through in life. But, but God is giving this parallelism through Luke, um, and, and, and he's showing us some things. Now, here, here's some, some of the important things when you come across parallelism like this. So the second and following lines repeat the first line, but usually with a slight variation. This usually strengthens or develops the thought, but sometimes it just repeats it for poetic effect. Usually you can see that there's some difference there that gives you a nuance of meaning that you otherwise might not get if you just had the naked first line there. The second line's not there. So some keys of interpretation. Uh, each line asserts the same or related truth. So we're not looking for some saying, oh, these are saying two totally different things because they're using some different words. That's not what's happening. But often there's a movement from general to specific. You'll see that in all these different types of parallelism. Usually it moves from something general to something more specific. And you always want to use what is familiar to understand the unfamiliar. We'll look at how that applies in in this verse. So, for example, right in these verses here, you you gain clarity on the general through understanding the specific. So, when it says, love your enemies, if you look at the rest of the verse, it's not saying, when you see your enemies, just feel this lovely feeling on the inside every time you see them. When you think about them, just feel happy. 
even though they have done you wrong. It's not talking about feelings at all, is it? Because if you look at the rest of it, it says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. It's actually giving instructions of something to do, not something to feel. So when we talk about loving your enemies, it's not talking at all about how you feel. You feel how you feel about them. But God is instructing us how we should act towards them. It's very different, right? It's very different. So, you know, some people struggle. How can I, how can I do this? But this is, this is a hard scripture for many folks. But it's not talking about your feelings at all. It's telling us about a way to actually do and, and, and fill out what God is saying for us to do. So the second type is antithetical parallelism. Antithetical. In other words, there's a major contrast between the two lines here. So Proverbs 10.1, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Now, if we took a proverb like that and, you know, we want to exegete this and, and we would say, well, it says a wise son makes a glad father, um, but apparently, because it doesn't say otherwise, his mother is very sad. No, it's not talking about that. A foolish son is a sorrow to his mother, but his father feels fine about him. No, that's not what it's saying, right? It's giving you this contrast and it's using mother and father as parents, right? They could be interchangeable in here, right? He's saying, for the parent, the wise son makes the parent happy and glad. The foolish one brings sorrow to his parents. So the second line contrasts with the first and provides that antithetical parallel there. This is actually the most common form of parallelism uh, in the Bible. There's 130 examples of this in Jesus' teaching. So as you look uh, through your New Testament, see Jesus' teaching, you can look for parallelism. Uh, it's all over the place, and often it's antithetical parallelism. Basically, the rules or interpretive keys are, are basically the same as what we just looked at. You're using the familiar to understand the unfamiliar. You look at how are these two statements related to one another. Uh, turn, if you got your Bible to, I hope you do because it's Bible study, turn to Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. Let me read those verses and then just talk about this a little bit. So, verse 4, it starts... Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Saying, don't get in there with a fool. Don't answer him according to his folly, or you'll be a fool yourself. The next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. The, the Jewish rabbis struggled with these verses. They're right next to each other. One of them says, don't engage the fool, leave him alone, he's a fool, don't be like him. The next verse says you've got to engage him or he'll be wise in his own eyes. And so uh, there was actually debates uh, um, among the Jews 
of whether or not the book of Proverbs should be part of the Jewish canon because of these verses. Because they said, it, 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 it's saying two opposite things, they're right next to each other, there's no way to put that together, right? That's because, and we, we often do the same things when we're looking for the Bible to give us a doctrine, and it's not trying to give you a doctrine. It's trying to give you some wisdom for living, and putting these two together gives you powerful wisdom for living. There are times when the right thing to do is just let the fool be a fool, not to get in there and be a fool yourself, right? There's times when you need to do that. There are other times in the way some of the rabbis put this together. They said, if it's dealing with important religious items, then verse 5 kicks in, then you need to correct him and get in and reprove him. I don't know if it's that specific here, though. I think that we know there are times when wickedness and foolishness needs to be verbally confronted. But there's also times when we're very unwise in going there. It takes discernment, right? So the Bible's not telling you here, in every case, do it this way. Oh, this is Proverbs 26, 4 time. This is Proverbs 26, 5. It doesn't tell you. But Proverbs helps us to cultivate wisdom, to know what to do with the knowledge that God has given us. So uh, you can see the, these antithetical parallels that help to give us wisdom. So um, let's go on to the next one. The next one that we have here is climactic parallelism. The example is Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, Jesus says, and this is in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And the second part of the parallel is, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So this is actually a form of synonymous parallelism, but you can see that it's going, from, uh, it's, it's going to something very specific that actually uh, is fulfilling, or it's, it's a climax to the first uh, part of the proposition. I haven't come to do this, but I have, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. He's saying, this is what I've actually come for. So, again, the goal for interpreting this type of language is to look at how these two lines, actually, how, how these, the two parts of this actually interact with one another. How is the first line advanced by the second line? So, again, using uh, unfamiliar uh, or using familiar to understand the unfamiliar. So let's look for a minute at another form of, of speech that we see and, and writing that we see throughout the scriptures. It's called chiasm or chiastic structure. This is all over your Bible. It's not just in verses. Um, it's in whole books of the Bible. In the Torah, there's books that interpreters look at and they see a chiastic structure throughout the book of Deuteronomy, for example. They see it in Daniel, in different parts of Daniel. They see it in Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 11 in, in Babel. They see chiastic structures there. So what a chiastic structure is, is it's a representation of alternating thoughts. So 
I've given a real simple example here. So uh, in Isaiah eleven thirteen, the first thought, A, Ephraim, and then B, shall not be jealous of, and then this is actually a three-part chiasm, Ephraim, A, shall not be jealous of, that's B, Judah, that's C. But then you have C1, B1, and, and A1, so it's going backwards. So, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Okay, so you see that structure in there? Um, one of the reasons that we believe there's so much chiastic uh, structure in the Bible is it makes it easy to memorize. It makes it easy to understand and to memorize the flow of thought when you see the way that it's written that, that in orders you to put it together simply and easily. Um, so what is he saying? Here's my AKA, uh, Isaiah saying, chill out, y'all. So he's in the middle of uh, Isaiah chapter 11, a great chapter in Scripture that, that talks about the coming of Jesus as the root of Jesse, uh, the one who will extend his hand and who will recover the remnant of his people. So he's prophesying a time coming thousands of years, hundreds of years later when the Savior will come, 700 years after Isaiah's prophesying. But he says, there's going to come one, the root of Jesse, who's coming, and he is going to bring back his people together. So he, he talks here in terms of Ephraim and Judah, and he goes back to the old conflicts that they had with one another. But he says, Ephraim, you don't need to be jealous of Judah. And Judah, you don't have to mess with Ephraim anymore. You can get along because the, the Messiah is coming. He prophesies the coming of Messiah in these verses. Um, but, but he uses this poetic language so that people can understand it and that they can also memorize it easily through chiasm. So uh, a chiasm aims at a sequence of thought which brings out the essence of the point more fully or sharply. Let's look at a few other examples of that, and we'll look at a couple examples in the New Testament. So Matthew chapter 23, verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See that? Jesus uses this all the time. This one's a little bit more difficult to see, but in Matthew 7, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love, hate the one and love the other, or B, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then the second part of A, you cannot serve God and money. See how that lines up? It, it, really, it really shows you very often the Lord uh, in Scripture uses this type of, of structure, chiasm, and he uses it sometimes in large sections of Scripture that help us to see how things are related. Here's one. This is, this is kind of chiastic, New Testament poetic parallelism, but let's see as we look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20, what even looking at the structure of it helps us to understand. Oops. So here we go. In, in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, go down to verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
Look at verse 16. I'm going to just do these parallels. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Well, let me just stop there for now. And then look at uh, verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The last part, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Then verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Even in verse, verses uh, 16 and 19, the note at the bottom of there, in Greek, the phrases at the beginning of those verses are, are actually the same verse. So uh, the same three words are used there, oti and apto. So he's using that, uh, the English translation translates it slightly differently. But you can see if you look at the first part of this, it's talking about Jesus as the, the, the one who creates all things. He's the great creator God. You see that in 15 through 19. That's what's being emphasized, that he is the one who created all that there is. He's the one. But in verses 18 through 20, it's emphasizing that he is now the savior of all. He is not just the firstborn of creation, but now he's the firstborn of the dead. In other words, he's been resurrected from the dead. He's not just in, 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 in verse, uh, verse, where is it? In the middle of verse 16, all things were created through him, but now he says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then he says in verse 20, through him to reconcile all things to himself. In, in verse 16 and 17, he's talking about him creating all things. He's before all things. Everything holds together in him. But now all things are reconciled through him, whether on heaven or on earth, right? So you see him as sovereign creator, Lord of the universe, but now you see him as savior and head of the church in the second part of that. So the structure uh, of the scripture helps us to understand uh, what God is saying some more. I'm going to run way out of time today, and we're not going to go too late, but all of this will be online as well, so you'll be able to get it. I'm um, going to go through some of this real quick. Classification of Psalms, and I actually have a page in here that is one person's looking at all of the Psalms and classifying them, but... Some of the psalms, I'll just go through a couple in particular. Psalms of lament, for one. There are more psalms of lament than any other kind of psalm in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? That's emotionally healthy stuff for us. So, so the, the writers of Scripture deal with their inner world and their lament and their struggle and their mess. And they don't cover it up. Life in a fallen world is not, maybe this is a bad example, but it's not the Cosby Show. Now, I'm going way back. It's not the Brady Bunch. That's, that's what I know from back in the day. Um, it's not a 30-minute sitcom where everything just is cool at the end of 30 minutes. Life in the fallen world is a mess. That's why we love the Psalms so much, because they present the messiness of the world. Now, most Psalms of Lament actually, at the end, have a word of praise at the, at the very end, but not all of them do. Um, Psalm 88, 
I actually love Psalm 88. I'll read the end of Psalm 88 just, to, just for a feel-good thing, okay? The end of Psalm 38. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Period. End of psalm. You're not going to get your shout on after that psalm. You're going to get your cry on after that psalm. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I need that psalm. You, you can go to the Bible and get this emotive language to deal with the reality of the fallenness of the world, the fallenness of your life, the sin without you and the sin within you, and the struggle that you live in, and the Bible is there to say, yeah, I know what that's like. It doesn't clean it up. It's not sanitized for your protection, right? The, the Bible gives it to us straight. So Psalms of Lament, Psalms of Praise, just go, go through this real quickly. Some of these other types of psalms, which you'll see. And there is a classification of all the psalms. So different people may classify them different ways. But you can see, just look at the number of lament psalms. The, the, the number there is a whole bunch. That's the actual number. It's a whole bunch. There's a whole bunch of lament psalms. So um, we learn through that. We learn through that. One type of psalm, it's a particular type of lament song, is called imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory. These are some rough psalms. Some of y'all are looking at some of those words up there, right? I'll just read a couple. The second one, oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Now, I know some of y'all want to pray imprecatory psalms a lot. Be careful. Be careful. Look at the last one. It's, it's like the roughest little saying in the Bible, right? Psalm 137, how blessed will be the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Good goobity goops. That's rough, right? This is rough language. I'm a Christian. How can I even read that? I hope you're not actually praying that for anyone or any, you know, anyone out there. Um, but through imprecatory psalms, C.S. Lewis says this, against all this, uh, all this, the ferocious parts of the psalms serve as a reminder that there is in the world such a thing as wickedness and that it is hateful to God. We're, we're, we're stirred to the reality of evil and God hates it. And, and, and through the psalmist, inspired by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God, they speak these words uh, uh, in, in a time of great lament and struggle and sorrow. And it expresses the depth of emotion that you and I all know. We know that emotion. Now, we've got to be careful as Christians how we deal with that and how we pray with that. But, but we're clued into the reality and the depth of evil through words like these in the Scripture. It is, you know, many times when people are struggling and going through hardship, we want to run straight to Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him. 
but sometimes we need to run to imprecatory psalms and not say, it's not that bad. Sometimes it is that bad. It is that bad. But at the end of all of it, there is a God of hope. There is a God of hope. So the scripture through this figurative language deals with those things. A couple things real quickly. Overstatement and hyperbole. Let me... Let me get there. Maybe I won't get there. Here we go. Okay. So I think I went too forward. Overstatement and hyperbole. Um, you see, you see this in the Bible a lot. Now, you know, does God use overstatement? Is he saying more than he's actually saying? Yes, a lot of times. It's a literary device. Biblical writers use that liber- literary device. So um, some of those, we'll see them up here. This, this statement is literally impossible. 2 Samuel 1, 23, John, uh, David's actually writing a poem about himself and Jonathan, and at one point he says that we're faster than eagles, we're more powerful than lions. They're not. <laughs> but that's, that's good poetic language to use that. Um, The statement conflicts with what the teacher teaches elsewhere. Jesus says, hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. Jesus is saying, you need to take up your cross. You need to hate all these people this way. So some of you really might like that tonight. Say, see, I'm I'm just doing what the Bible says. No, the Bible is using that as hyperbolic speech and overstatement in order to convey a truth that our love for God is so much greater than any love that we have, any other love that we have. It's so central to our lives that anything else in comparison looks like hate. Husbands, if you want to love your wives well, you need to start with loving God like this. Then you actually have the ability to love someone else. He says, you've got to put me first and far above all. So overstatement works that way. Um, let's just go on here. Um, there, there's some more things. Uh, Jeremiah 6.13, the last one on here. The statement uses universal language such as everyone, no one, and all. That's one of the things that clues you in that this is figurative language. Um, it may be hyperbole. Um, so in Jeremiah 6, 13, uh, the prophet writes, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. What's the problem with that? A prophet is writing that and speaking that. I hope I can trust Jeremiah because if this is literally correct, if it's not hyperbole, if it's not exaggeration, then I can't trust what he's writing or saying, right? Because everyone deals falsely. But indeed, that's, that's not the problem. We can indeed trust what he says. Um, the Bible uses a lot of idioms. Every language uses idioms. Um, so you see some of them out there. Here's my, one of my favorite ones is uh, the last one on there. Now, in the ESV... Uh, David is saying, if, there is, if there's a man left at the end of the day, you know, God's going to get me. Because uh, it's Abigail's husband, there's all this craziness, and uh, 
and he's going he's gonna to get them. But in the Hebrew, it actually says, one who urinates against the wall. That's an idiom for a man. And it's actually, if you ever look at the King James uh, on that verse, I'm not going to repeat it right now, but the King James has a very interesting uh, translation. Uh, but it's, it's, it's the Hebrew. It's actually giving it straight from the Hebrew there. Um, in Job 31, where Job is, is defending himself against his accusers, and he's saying that I, I've acted rightly, I haven't done wrong in regards to other women. He says, if I have, then let others bow down on her. Speaking of his wife. That's the way it reads in the ESV. What that actually means is let others have sex with her. The Hebrew is literally let them kneel over her. But it's an idiom in the scripture that's trying to convey something. So every language has its idioms. So real quickly... This isn't strictly in poetry, but just an overall hermeneutical guide. How do I study the scriptures well? Observation, looking at the passage, looking at what exactly it's saying, understand the meaning of phrases, understanding context is always the most important thing you'll do. If you understand it out of context, you will understand it wrong. You can do a million word studies and get everything wrong because you didn't see. Pastor E did a marvelous job of that on Sunday when he was talking from John's gospel and he starts by telling us what John's gospel is about it is presenting Jesus as God Almighty so when he goes to the man and says do you want to be made whole this is one expression of that and then he walked us back through the context of the woman at the well and others that he dealt with and and brings us right into there you're looking at context but you're observing uh the passage you're interpreting then what does the author mean in his historical setting what is he trying to convey then evaluating the passage what does it mean to today's culture see very often what happens is we observe something and then we go straight to applying it and that's where people mess up badly because we can't just import things from a 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 year old culture into our culture, not understand the cultural differences and say, this will work this way. So we've got to do the work of evaluating the principles and then how it applies to us today. And then lastly, the last thing, don't start with application, end with application, and start the application with yourself. We love to think about application for other people. I know they need to hear this. They really need to hear this. What is God saying to you? What is God? So keep in mind using the gospel as the rubric for application. That's really, really important. Everything in our exegetical work as we come to the Bible, we need to flow it through the reality and the truth of the gospel. The truth of the fact that God has come to rescue us in Jesus Christ. He, he, he lived this perfect life. He died this death. He rose from the grave. And He is our Savior. So we need to be uh, careful as we get to passages of Scripture that are laying out commands and imperatives in New Testament or Old Testament as if that's the thing that's going to make us right. We run it through the Gospel. The reality is, uh, the, the Bible says in, in, in uh, Galatians that the law was given as a tutor to lead us to Christ, right? So even the law of the Old Testament, which actually becomes more severe, not less severe in the New Testament, 
right? In the New Testament, and I, I skipped over this one, I'll finish with this. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, as Jesus is teaching, uh, he uses a figure of speech and he says, you know, if your right eye causes you to sin, take it out and throw it away. Oh gosh. Now, first of all, how did you know it was your right eye that caused you to sin and not your left eye? I don't know how you figured that out. But, and then he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, right? And he's talking about lust in this context. If your right hand causes you to sin, then chop it off and throw it away. Well, what's the problem with that? If the problem is lust and you're a one-eyed, one-handed Christian, are you going to lust any less? You're going to have to chop off the left arm, and you're going to have to pull out the right eye. And then you have memories. So you're going to have to do a frontal lobotomy, and you're going to just, there's not going to be anything left of you, right? But the Bible is using this language in a powerful way. Jay Adams uh, calls this language, um, trying to think of the word that he uses for it. Um, Radical amputation. How do you deal with sin? Get as far away from it as you can. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't play with it. Don't say, well, you know, is this sin? No, I know I did this, and I know this is wrong, but is this wrong? We get in a lot of trouble like that, right? We get in a lot of trouble. So it's like, how close can I get? I can do this, but I can't do that. Can we, you know... Be careful. The Bible's saying stay as far away as possible. Look at how you can apply that. So this is just a basic introduction to understanding uh, poetic language in the Bible. One thing I want to do real quick, just there are two pages of resources for you as well on this. Great resources that many of them are free, especially at the bottom here. The last two resources I have there are online resources that will help you study the Bible well. Netbible.org, Biblehub.com, and up uh, in the second one, studylight.org. Lots of commentaries there and other things that can really help you as you study the Scriptures. So uh, my prayer is that this will help you and it will, um, it will inspire you to study the Bible on a different level, Right? So we always tell people, study your Bible, study your Bible. Like, I don't know how to study my Bible. Hopefully this gives you a little bit clue, and, and we'll be doing a lot of this uh, as we go through uh, our, our Wednesday night Bible studies. We want to help people learn how to study their Bibles well. Amen? Amen. Well, with that, we're done. Sorry, no time for questions, but uh, let me pray us out, and we'll be dismissed for this evening. Father God, we're thankful and grateful to you uh, that you are the God who has given us, you've deposited your word in order that it might be life and light to us. Your word uh, is a, 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 a lamp to our paths, Lord God. It's a, it's a light to us. It's a lamp to us. Your word we hide in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Father, we're thankful that your word gives us the truth of the gospel and hope in Christ and Him alone. Lord, help us as your people to rightly divide your word, to study and show ourselves approved, that we might know you better 
that we might grow in grace and and that we might walk in a way that Jesus is magnified through our lives. Lord, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name.